Blog Talk Radio. Radio, however, wherever, whenever you listen to the show. I am your host, John Robb. It's great to have you here on this Saturday morning. This is March 25th, 2017, Suspense Radio Inside Edition. Fabulous show for you today, 90 minutes, three fantastic authors. Kicking it off with author Brad Parks. He will be talking about his book, Say Nothing. And then we're going to have Anthony Franzi and Dale Wiley on today, too. So it's going to be an absolutely fascinating show to be able to get into not only what they're writing, but into the business of books and different things and just kind of talk like two guys sitting at the bar having a beer. So we want to remind everybody, of course, that all of our shows are brought to you by Kensington Books, so make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information on their authors and what they have for new releases. Also, our latest magazine has been out for a little while. If you don't have it, you can email me at editor suspensemagazine.com. Make sure you get that one. Uh, our December Best of issue is on the website for free, along with, I don't know, 20 other countless past ones with thousands of book reviews to make sure that you never sit back and say, I have nothing to read. Well, that's because you're lazy and you're not looking at what you, sh- you, know, you-, you should be looking at. But let's jump right in here. We had Brad on um, Beyond the Cover with Jeff Ayers and I, and it's great to be able to kind of have Brad back and kind of have a little bit different conversation, what we did there, so you can check out that interview. And so this is basically going to be an extended one-hour conversation with Brad. So, Brad, thank you so much for coming on today again. How are you doing? John, it's great to see you again. Or, oh, great, wait, I'm, I'm, I'm talking Close. on the phone, so I guess it's great to talk to you again. Uh, I, I like, true. by the way, how you just kind of subtly threw Jeff Ayers under the bus. It was basically <laughs> like, we're not going to have Jeff Ayers here to screw this up. So, uh, so this is going to be a wonderful conversation. I'm going to let him know you said that. Uh, well, you know, he knows. I mean, <laughs> but we, you know, we kind of have, you know, with the beyond the cover, we kind of set up a little different style than I do here. I mean, this is more nitty gritty. Let's get into the book and this and that. Beyond the cover, we just kind of, you know, it's a little more free will. We like to talk about other things, get involved with other things because it's beyond the cover. But this is more, right, you know, nitty gritty. Let's get into the, let's get into the meat of the subject. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, we've been doing that show for a little over two years now, and it's been a lot of fun. Well, so now we're inside the cover, which is good because you now know the author never the actually cover. has. Yeah, we ever never actually have anything to do with the cover anyway. I mean, I, I think That's probably uh, the the people who listen to your show are savvy enough to know that. But like you know, a lot of people on the outside think that I'm I, I'm somehow you know after I I have I've done you know completed writing a hundred and ten thousand word book that, that the next thing I do is then you know go to my Macintosh and design the cover. It's like no, yeah. no, actually, and 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 by the way, I have. I have not only nothing to do with the design, it's like the, um, the, the standard publishing contract says that an author has, quote, the right to consult on their cover, 
which any lawyer can tell you the right to consult means ha <laughs> take it or leave it sucker <laughs> you know like exactly. that you you have no uh you have no real authority over your cover not to say i don't love my cover but um uh yeah anyhow i'm already off yeah. on a tangent aren't i sorry that's okay I, I really because, uh, because I, the other thing that you get into after you design your cover is you sit down and then you create your cast of characters that are going to be in the movie and you start writing the script and that all gets done <laughs> you know because we that's how that, that works. works because a lot of people will go oh, you know i mean poor lee child gets gets reamed because tom cruise is jack reacher and it's like yeah, he sat down and's like, let's see, who's my wish list? Oh, Tom Cruise, number yeah, right. one. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, well, yes, but Lee has two great lines about that. Um, one he says in public, uh, it, which is, you know, it, it's not like we pass. I'm sorry, I should do it like Lee. It's not like we passed over a bunch of six foot five actors on our way to Tom Cruise. Uh, right. So that's one. Uh, and then the other thing. Which he says more in private, which is, you know, if Tom Cruise asks to do your book as a movie, you say yes, which is a fair point. (laughs) Exactly. You know, because you're not going to get too much of a bigger actor, I guess you want to say, or draw or at least a name recognition than a Cruise to do your character. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean that, you know, Tom Cruise that. doing a movie, you know, guarantees a, a at least a fifty million dollar budget, if not a hundred million dollars, or whatever the numbers right. are, and uh, and an opening weekend that will make the budget back. And there's not that many actors out there who can who can do that. No. And then you know, and then your book sales go spike up again. Exactly. Exactly. You know, from a book that was, I think, I was like seven or eight years old because they picked the one shot. I think it was like seven or eight years old of that's the book. So then people probably went out and got it like, oh my god, I never heard this Lee Child guy before. Oh like, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Way to get out of your parents' basement. Brilliant advertising. Because they they didn't mm-hmm. even they called the movie Jack Reacher. I mean, they named right. the movie after his character, who the is character. the hero of all twenty books. I mean, you couldn't ask for better marketing than that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then they actually put the name of the one book in the second one, never back down. But the first one, they did not say Jack Reacher one shot. It was yeah. just Jack Reacher. That Jack was it. Reacher, bang, yeah, yeah. But let's say let's let's jump in here to your book because it's sure. it's kind of a. It's kind of, I guess you want to say, it's kind of a title that is definitely not the both of us, which is called Say Nothing, because there's never a time when we will say nothing. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of ironic. I, you know, I kind of find that a little funny. But, you know, it, it's also a standalone book. So people that are fans of yours or people that, you know, are looking are like, oh, you know, who's Brad Parks? And they kind of see you around. They see you write this Carter Ross mystery series. But then your latest book is a standalone so let's jump into, you know, what is Say Nothing, and then let's try to, you know, start getting a little bit more into, you know, the thought process maybe behind why Standalone out of the series, that whole kind of thing, because you're doing something a little bit backwards where a lot of people might start out with Standalones and then jump into a series. So, yeah, so I, first of all, yeah, Say Nothing is the story of a federal judge. Uh, whose children are kidnapped by somebody who is looking to control the outcome of a case the judge is hearing. So the deal becomes, uh, basically, we'll give you your kids back when you give us the verdict we want. Um, and, you know, so that's the, I mean, and, uh, you know, the, it, it, it's a quick starting book. I mean, you know exactly what's going on within about 1,500 pages. Um, but then, the, you know, the question becomes, <laughs> okay, what else, wh- what else is this going to cost this judge? Uh, you know, as as things go along, and and he's really this guy who kind of has this you know this wonderful idyllic life. I mean, he's got a great job. A federal judge is a that that is a really truly one of the great jobs out there because you don't actually have a boss, 
and it literally takes an act of Congress to fire you. Like, good job, right? And he's got a wonderful wife, and he's got you know these two beautiful kids, healthy kids, and you know within within pages he's losing all of it. Um, and we we watch him struggle to get it all back. Um, as for so the, now, the standalone versus okay. series, oh, if if you'd like me to, so. You know, it was yeah. I'd, I'd written six books in a series with Carter Ross, and I, I think it was it was really a combination of things. I mean, one, I, I there were other stories that I wanted to tell that I kind of couldn't tell through the lens of Carter Ross. Uh, you know, I mean, Carter is a uh, is a newspaper reporter from New Jersey. Uh, obviously, I cannot tell the judge story through his eyes. Um, and I think also, I mean, for me personally, you know, I started writing Carter Ross when I was 30 years old. Um, I, you know, so I made Carter Ross this kind of happy-go-lucky bachelor guy, um, and I'm I'm now in my 40s, and uh, you know, my life has changed a lot. I, it's not so happy-go-lucky. I've got you know kids, and I'm married, and all this other kind of stuff, and and I guess you know the things that were really surrounding me on a daily basis are are those kind of things, family kind of things, and and I I guess I wanted to write a book that where I could be more writing about those kind of issues. And of course, you know your your background lends you to kind of already being involved in, I guess you want to say, the mystery thriller kind of lifestyle. Um, so, when did you kind of decide that you know what I want to actually write fiction instead of maybe handling real life, kind of jumping around a little bit? Right. So, I guess you know, uh, fiction for me was yes. I you know I was a journalist for many years. Uh, fiction was always, uh, I, I would think of, well, so I was a newspaper reporter and I, and I thought that, you know, I knew that the grind of a daily newspaper kind of like slowly just eats you up and spits you out. So I'd always thought that like I would, uh, when I was in my mid fifties, I would like take an early retirement and then I would write mystery novels, you know, like go hole up in some right. little cottage somewhere. And, and wouldn't that be wonderful? Cause I've always loved reading mysteries and thrillers. I mean, since I was a kid. Um, and I guess, you know, really the, the death of the newspaper industry made me speed up that choice um, where, you know, suddenly, I mean, you know, the, the newspaper I was at, which was the Newark Star-Ledger, will unfortunately, I mean, it's already kind of dying, um, and I, I certainly yeah. hope it survives, but, uh, you know, it, it, it may well be dead um, in a few years. And, you know, my, my children are of an age where, you know, before long, they'll be teenagers, and, and, and soon after that, they'll want to go to college. And, you know, so say about eight years from now, when, uh, when the fa- paper finally dies, and like, you know, one, one of them is uh, about to start, uh, you know, freshman year of college, it's like, Ah, that's really a bad time for Daddy to be out of work. <laughs> so, um, so you know, my my wife and I kind of made this decision, uh, well, about eight years ago, that uh, you know that uh, I would I would chuck my job and I uh, and I would start writing novels. Um, and uh, you know, and so it's it's been a it's been a, a wonderful and, and fascinating ride since then. And I guess I've always had the idea in my head, like, oh, maybe someday if I tripped across a nonfiction story that really grabbed me. Uh, that I, w- I would certainly go back to that, but uh, for right now, I'm I'm enjoying writing novels and it's going well. So you know, why stop? Making stuff up is fun, John. That's the def- I mean, when you're sitting down and you see, because the one thing that you've had to do that you really haven't had to do since you know your first book, Faces of the Gone, in the Carter in the Carter Ross series, is that you had to start with a blank canvas. You had yeah. you, had, you had really had nothing there. It's like okay, I'm starting back over again with this blank canvas, and now I got to create you know, this the, this whole atmosphere again. So since you hadn't really done that in, in five books, how was that for you to kind of go back, I guess you want to say maybe to the roots, 
to kind of have to go right. back and look at that and say, let's create. Yeah, and that was both, uh, you know, terrifying and wonderful, frankly. Um, you know, because when, when you're writing a series, you, you've made choices, storytelling choices, that for better or worse, you have to stick with. Um, and that can be wonderful at times because, yes, you've got this world and you've got these characters and they're already defined. But, you know, it can also be limiting at times where like, OK, I, I would love to have done X, Y or Z with this character, but it's too late. You know, I've, I've, I've already passed that that, uh, you know, that that stop on the turnpike to use Jersey language. Um, so it was it was fun to have a novel where truly anything was possible. Um, you know, and I think the other thing about a standalone that, that I, I really enjoyed was there's no one safe in this novel. You know, I mean, w- with a series, you sort of know, OK, you know, probably the protagonist is not going to die because, you know, the author yeah. is going to want to send ch- his children to college. And, and furthermore, people who love the series will, will show up on the author's doorstep and, and you know, burn him at the stake. Um, yeah. So it was it was fun to write a book where. I mean, I, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen, and I also knew I could make anything happen. Um, and while terrifying, that's also very freeing and a lot of fun. Yeah, I always kind of crack up at TV shows and movies, like at the beginning, uh, you know, and we're sitting here like, like talking about Jack Reacher. It's kind of like you can put Tom Cruise in this perilous situation at the very beginning, but what's the point? I know he's going to get out. Because yeah, right, right. The fucking yeah. movie's named after him, for crying out loud. So I always kind of crack <laughs> up, and I'm kind of like, right. you know, why do they do that when it's like there's – because to me, there's zero suspense built in to putting false suspense into right. something when I know he has to make it. There's no other way around it. So I'm just sitting there just saying, okay, let's just end this scene because we already know how it's going to end so we can move on. Yeah, well, so – but uh, but I, I think you, what you forget is that we um, – we all evolved from the the same animal that raccoons evolved from, and so you know, look, something shiny, ooh, pretty shiny yeah, thing, and, and you know, and that and that works. I mean, yeah, like you know, in that the you know the James Bond movies always do that the great sequence, the the great action sequence at the start, but yeah, James is getting out of this alive because there's another two hours of this movie left. Um, yeah, but yeah, so it is it was like to to and and I think there's also a. Um, you know, when I'm writing uh, my my series books, uh, I call it the uh, the kill bell. Like, there's always this little bell that goes off in my head of like, okay, no one has died in about thirty or forty thousand words. Things are starting yeah. to feel a little too safe. Like, someone has to die. You know, and yeah. so I kind of gather all the characters in the room and I, I inform them. I, mean, I I do talk to my characters, John, in case you haven't figured it out. So, you know, I gather them up and I say, okay, yeah. guys, I, I have bad news you know, one of you has to die, you know, and then they all start looking at their shoes and it gets real awkward. But, you know, when I'm having that conversation with them, Carter Ross is always off over in the corner, just kind of leaning jauntily against the wall going, <laughs> it's not going to be me, guys. Have fun figuring out who it is. Um, you know, so it is, it is fun to have a book where, where, again, no one is safe. Yeah, I mean, I always love, I think that's probably why 24 was one of my favorite TV shows because really besides Kiefer Sutherland, anybody in that show could have died at any time. Sure, And so sure. you just never knew. And that was to me very suspenseful. And But the one thing that you did when you created this is, of course, you know, you're a father, I'm a father, and we kind of talked about this before, but we'll go, I'm going to go over it again, is, is, yep. the emotional, is the emotional struggle that you've had to put yourself in, you know, and, and again, this is fiction, but when you think about it in real life, it's absolutely terrifying that you have two six-year-olds 
that are now kidnapped, and those are the innocent yeah. victims and every parent's nightmare. So when you decided that this was the way you were going to go, how did you think that you were going to be able to write this and, and, and kind of put yourself out of, the, out of the husband and the father role and put yourself into the character role? So honestly, I didn't put myself out of the husband and father role. Um, mm. as, as a writer, I am like the most shameless method actor who ever lived. Uh, I mean, I put myself right into it, and I imagine what would I be thinking, what would I be feeling, what would I be doing if this were happening to me? Um, and it and it made the writing, frankly, really difficult at times. Uh, I mean, there there were days when I came away from the keyboard, and I was just completely drained. You know, I mean, I would I would need kind of some time to decompress. Uh, there's a, there's also one kind of scene later on in the book that was so difficult to write. I actually had to I, like I knew I couldn't write it sober. So I, I went to the bar in the afternoon and, uh, and wrote it drunk. Um, this is I, and then the next morning, I, uh, I got a very important lesson in, oh, this is why I don't write drunk. This is terrible. But uh, at least uh, for, the, for the first pass through, I, just, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't be sober writing it. But, um, you know, there were definitely a lot, of, uh, a lot of days when I found myself hugging my kids a little tighter. And, um, uh, and it was, it was draining and it was awful at times. And, but I think in the end that comes through in the book. I mean, there's just a lot of really real and raw emotion in this book. And obviously I, 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 there's no way I could have written this book when I was a childless single man, just not possible. Yeah. Because it's, it's difficult to not have that emotion that you have to put into the judge. I mean, so would you say that, that Scott, that, that, the, that, that Scott Sampson acted kind of like how Brad Parks would have acted or two totally different things? Well, so, yeah, Scott Sampson is the judge. Uh, I don't think we'd said his name yet. So, you know, for those following oh, along at home okay. going, wait, who's Scott Sampson? Um, yeah. Judge Scott uh, Sampson, you know, he's the, the head of the book, everybody, just so you know. Okay. Yeah, yeah he's the protagonist. So, you know, I think what Scott Sampson gets from Brad Parks, if Brad Parks can start talking in the third person very pompously, is the voice. Like Scott Sampson kind of has my voice. Um, because what other voice do I have? And then I think he will make some different decisions because he is a judge and he has, uh, you know, the path that has led him to where he is is very different from my path. And so I'm mindful of that. And I, I mean, I can't really cite specific examples because I don't want to destroy the book for anybody who hasn't read it. Um, but yeah, there, there are times when Scott Sampson makes some very different choices than what Brad Parks would make. And, and that's what, that's what makes writing fiction interesting. It's, it's like, I'm not, it's, you know, for as much as there are always going to be autobiographical elements in fiction. Uh, and, and I always laugh at, at authors who try to claim that somehow there's, there's absolutely no autobiography in their fiction, which, I mean, I, I get to varying degrees of, you know, there, there's some more so and some less so. I mean, you know, uh, you know Sue Grafton would, would admit that, that, that Kinsey Milhone is her as an investigator, you know, as a private investigator and, and no big deal. And, and then there are other people who try to distance themselves. But, you know, the fact is we as authors, we only get to live one life, and that is the life that, that provides the grist for our mill, you know? I mean, that's where our stories come from in one way or another. So, yeah, there's obviously going to be a lot in Scott Sampson that is just very much me. And, um, and then a few times when it's uh, – I go, okay, what would a judge do here? Because uh, a judge is going to be different than a, a writer, which is what I am. Right. 
Right. I mean, yeah, the judge has to, you know, look at the law, look at other things. You know, does he risk his career to kind of do what he has to do? Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot of a lot, a lot of different things that have to be, you know, looked at to make the realism in fiction, which is, you know, I always, you know, find funny. People are like, oh, well, they would never do that. I'm like, well, it's freaking fiction. Maybe they would. How do you know? Uh, it's kind of like well, you, so you I've, I've always observed. I mean, that, like, I look at the news every day, and I'm amazed how people act. Yeah. So it's like you never know. So I, I really think it's, it's a funny thing where people like their their true stories to be so bizarre you couldn't have possibly made them up, but they like their so they they, they uh, I should find a way to say this more succinctly because it would it would make a nice throw pillow, but like you know. Uh, People like their nonfiction to be stranger than fiction, and they like their fiction to read like it's real, you know? Right. Uh, I mean, there's, there's nothing worse than when you're – and, you know, I mean, why does say, like, Michael Connolly is, you know, one of our enduring greats? Because you're always reading a Michael Connolly story going, wow, wait, this could really happen. You know, or, you know, I think about some of the, the, the really well-researched thrillers out there. Uh, like I, I was just reading Steve Barry, um, you know, Steve and I did an event together in Florida. And you read Steve Barry and you are like, it's all you can do to peel yourself away from Google or, or you know, to, to not go to Google immediately to be like, OK, what if this is real? Because, wait, did, did, did President Lincoln really do that? Was there really that thing? You know, and, uh, you know, the, and, and of course, in Steve's case, it's like 90 percent of it is real. He's just given it a little twist. So uh, exactly. it, is, it is always fun to have that, that interplay. Now, is there a scene or maybe a part of the book that you kind of feel captures the essence of the book and maybe like who you are as a writer? Like what are those things when you're done, you're like, and you go back and read it and you're like, I can't believe I wrote it. That was like an amazing part. That's like that you think of maybe like the centerpiece of what you feel is in the book. So, um, <laughs> yes, I, I, I can quote myself, John. Um, and right. I can actually, I knew you could. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and it's actually, it's one of my favorite lines from the book and it's on my mind in particular because somebody tweeted it at me yesterday, um, oh. which is really cool when it's like, it was really one of my favorite lines. And, um, but you don't know as a writer, like, okay, I love that line, but is anybody else even going to see this? Is anybody else going to appreciate this at all? Sure. And, uh, and then uh, this guy from Germany actually tweeted it at me. And so I can find it quickly simply because I have the tweet. So I remember very clearly writing this line because um, I, was, I was in the Ford dealership and I was getting my tires, I was getting new tires put on my car, you know, which is all, you know, where all great fiction, of course, should happen is in the Ford dealership while you're getting new tires. But, exactly. um, but I was having kind of the judge reflect on um, the, the fact that, I mean, one of the things I loved about this book, John, was that a, a federal judge is really, truly one of the most powerful creatures in our democracy. I mean, you know, these are guys who, I mean, yes, can their rulings be overturned by a higher court? Yeah, sure. But the, it, that has no bearing on them. In, you know, and again, they don't have a boss. They, you know, and, and a lot of a federal judge's decisions are actually kind of unassailable. I mean, once they have decided on something, that's the, you know, that becomes the definition that defines the case for the rest of time, even if it is appealed. So, you know, very, very the powerful travel ban people. that just happened. Just there recent. you go. Yeah. Hey, Mr. President, go stop your travel ban. Exactly. And mm -hmm. and and even even though that will be reviewed by higher courts, there's you know there are certain like findings of fact that a judge can make that become that is the fact. You know. I mean. So these yeah. are powerful, powerful guys. And yet he is is dealing with the fact that and and he by the way was also a guy who um, he, he had a, a tragic backstory that I won't get into that made him feel particularly vulnerable. But um, one of the reasons he moved his family to this very 
rural area and kind of middle of nowhere with a big long driveway and and he, he thought that that would keep his children safe right he thought you know I'm, I'm in the middle of nowhere nothing ever happens here uh, and so I have him and this was the, the line that was quoted back to me by somebody in Germany quote security was a myth a grand lie we told ourselves to mask the jarring reality of the human condition that the social contract was written in sand, not stone, and it could be blown away at any time by anyone with sufficient breath in his lungs. Jesus Christ, that's too deep, man. It's only 9.24 in the morning here. <laughs> I don't know well, if so I, can, after... I, can't, I, can't, I can't evaluate that in the next couple minutes that I got you on the show. I should have asked you that first, and then we could have come back to it at the end. That's nice, though. That's, <laughs> I like that. Well, it's, it's afternoon time here on the East Coast, so I'm, I'm ready to, uh, to, to tackle with the, with the great issues. But, you know, I mean, I think that's a lot of what crime fiction does, or, or particularly, yeah. um, you know, I think this book is, is slotted into the category of, uh, like, domestic thriller, right? Um, and so a lot of people have been asking me lately, well, what, is, what exactly is a domestic thriller? To me, a domestic thriller is it, it is a character who you can meet at the grocery store, right? So it, it is not a character who has been gifted with anything super, you know, not ex-secret agent, not um, a, a weapons expert, not a, you know, whatever, all the wonderful characters that we enjoy in this genre. These are ordinary people, right? And I think one of the things I enjoy about crime fiction is when you take an ordinary person and you have something, something so horrible, something we can't even imagine happen to them, how do they react, right? And, right. and I think one of the things that, that has to happen is a, is a character kind of, while well, being both simultaneously disillusioned, is also having their eyes opened to just how vulnerable they were all along and they didn't even realize it. Yeah, it's like you and me putting into extraordinary situations that we would never be, you know, that's the Harlan Coben uh, formula right, right there. Right. You know, that, that's kind of, and Joseph Fender kind of, you know, does the same thing so uh, lately with kind of his books. So, I mean, that's, you know, it's a great. Um, it's a great formula because it allows you to, like you said, you don't have this extraordinary weapons, this and that. You can't really write things of coincidence where you just happen to have the MacGyver-style paperclip right there while the guy right. was trapped and able to get out. <laughs> right. You know? and they, yeah, and they don't have, they don't have skills it's a and challenge to fall for back you. on. Yeah. Right. Well, it's so, a challenge you know what? for you. I honestly – Go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say, like, you know, I, I actually did try to write a book that was, you know, a character who I gave this, you know, fascinating backstory that could explain why he had all these abilities and he could do this and he could do that. And, you know, he could break your jaw by looking at you. And I, I wrote the entire manuscript and I ended up throwing it away, believe it or not, because, like, I never really connected with that character. Right. Like because I can't break somebody's job by looking at them and I couldn't like I just never kind of breathed life into that guy strictly because he wasn't somebody I could meet at the grocery store. Um, like I, and, and, and every writer is different, obviously, but, but for me and, and Carter Ross is very, you know, while being a newspaper reporter gives him some skills as an investigator and gives him, you know, the, the, the power of a newspaper behind him and whatnot, he's still a pretty normal guy. You know, I mean, I, I mean, obviously Carter Ross is very autobiographical in my case, but he's, he's not a guy who, who, you know, knows how to field strip an AR-15 blindfolded. Um, you know, he, he's a guy who you know, looks at, a, at an AR-15 and goes, wow, that's a really scary gun. I wonder how it right. works, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I guess I've always, like, those are the kind of characters I can connect with, um, you know, these ordinary people. Yeah, I mean, if I found a bazooka, I would end up blowing myself up. First of all, I'd mm. end up getting shot just trying to figure out how to turn the damn thing on. 
and right. where to point it, and then I would just blow myself up. I mean, that's just yeah, I'm yeah, about. yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I could only I'm help. The, it's like I, I think I could figure out which end is the dangerous end and know not to stand in front of that. But, but yeah, otherwise, right. if, if someone's truck is nearby, I, I feel bad because it's done. You know, whoops, it's done. Sorry, I'm blowing my whole house up because I'm going to screw yeah, it up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is yeah. that covered in my well, insurance policy? That that that'd be all I was thinking. Exactly. Well, I'll tell you what, Brad, it has been a fascinating conversation, like always. I mean, we've flown by. I mean, it's just amazing how fast that you can, you know, fly by. But, but real quick, want to be able to let you kind of tell everybody where's the best place for people to find out your, you know, your Twitter, your Facebook or website, everything. Give them the best kind of things to, uh, to find out more about you. Sure. Uh, so, on uh, on the World Wide Web, I am www.bradparksbooks.com. Uh, on the Twitter, I am Brad underscore Parks. And then on Facebook, I am www.facebook.com slash bradparksbooks. So it's all hopefully, or just, you know, if you forget all of that, just Google me and you'll find me. And then you're in. And then you're in, exactly. John, I want to thank so much. you it again was a lot so of much for coming on. And I might see you at Thriller Fest. Uh, John Land emailed me, and he asked me to do a couple panels, and I might just fly out and do that and then book. So maybe we'll see you in July. Awesome. Sounds like a plan. All right. You have a good one. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Thanks for having me on. Uh-huh. So everybody, that is author Brad Parks. The book is called Say Nothing. It is a standalone. Um, so if you want Brad to write uh, another Carter Ross book, you go to bradparksbooks.com, click Contact, and let him know what, how you feel about the great book, Say Nothing. And, you know, and if you want him to write another uh, you know, Carter Ross book, you can kind of put that in the, in the email too. But make sure you visit bradparksbooks.com for more information. And, again, the book is Say Nothing. You can get it now. So wherever you buy books, Amazon is a great place to do that. Uh, go out there and pick that up. We are going to take just a little short break. We're going to come back with our next guest, of course, a good friend of ours, Anthony Franzi, and he's going to be talking about his latest book, The Outsider, which just came out uh, March 21st, so really, really, really new. Uh, in the meantime, take a quick peek to this, and we'll be right back. Won't you smile a little Did I dream you went 
welcome back, everybody. Again, after the break, we want to, uh, again, thank Brad Parks for joining us. But now we're going to transition into our next guest. And we had him on last time uh, for his last book that was out, The Advocate's Daughter. But now his latest book is called The uh, Outsider. And, of course, after I screwed up his last name, I have to say it right. So this is Anthony Franz. Um, so make sure it's F-R-A-N-Z-E because I can't say last names. And if you try to spell it how I say it, you'll probably screw it up. So, Anthony, I want to thank you so much for coming on again, my man. How you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. And uh, I've been called a lot worse than Francie, so, so I, I completely too. understand. <laughs> yeah, with a name like R-A-A-B, you can imagine that people don't they, – they, 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 you know, I get Rab, I get A-Rab. I even tell people when they say spell your name because I'll say, you know, R-A-A-B, and then I get it back and it's A-R-A-B. Like they can't imagine two A's together. So now I'm like R. A, A. <laughs> I'm like I'm gonna give you the short version here because my name's only eight fucking letters, man. I mean, come on, a break. <laughs> yeah, I mean I'm at the top of the R list. You can't get any higher on the alphabet than me. <laughs> yeah. So we're off. Our, so you know, we we had John last time, of course, talking about your latest book, which was fascinating, by the way. Um, but. All of a sudden, it, was, it seemed like yesterday that we were just talking about the advocate's daughter, but now all of a sudden, boom, here comes The Outsider uh, just came out March 21st, so people can buy it however you buy books. The book is out now, March 21st. Go get it. Of course, we always suggest Amazon for that. Um, so let's just dump into it. What, what do you got going on in this one? Oh well, thanks. Thanks. Uh, yeah, a year. It's been uh, almost a year to the day that Advocate's Daughter came out. Yeah. That this one came out, and uh, um, it's been a, a hectic year, both uh, <laughs> both in writing and, and practicing law for me. But yeah. um, the the Outsider. It's it's uh, you know for those who don't know me, I'm I'm a, a Washington D.C. lawyer, and part of my practice is is well, most of my practice is being an appellate lawyer, and a, a lot of that involves having cases or representing clients in the um, U.S. Supreme Court. And so that is where I uh, set my thrillers in that uh, insular kind of secreted world of the um, Supreme Court, which is uh, good timing for me this week since there's a lot going on with the Supreme Court. Um, yes, there is. But the, yeah, the outsider is um, – it's about a Supreme Court law clerk, and uh, not, but kind of an, uh, unlike – um, a law clerk, the, the the real Supreme Court's ever seen, and um, the, the the high court has these uh, the justices and the nine justices each um, have uh, usually hire about four, sometimes five, but usually about four um, kind of cream of the crop, uh, Ivy League, uh, bright young lawyers to be essentially their apprentices for one year, and it is really the most coveted. Um, legal job for a, a, a young lawyer at a law school one or two years to get. And so I, I uh, made my protagonist a law clerk, but he, he didn't follow the usual path. Usually it's, it's this uh, pedigreed um, uh, steps along, uh, you know, basically road scholarships and, and other clerkships and things like that. My guy, his name's Gray Hernandez or Grayson Hernandez. And he, uh, he, he grew up in a rough side of DC He's uh, uh, the son of immigrants. He went to uh, he scrapped his way out of you know a rough public school, uh, making it into a kind of really low rank law school. And he, when he graduates from law school, he you know he did well. He's a smart guy, but there's just no law jobs to be had. So he ends up taking a job as a messenger, um, and it happens to be that 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 the job as a messenger at the U.S. Supreme Court. 
And so he's in this situation where he's a lawyer, but he, he's really, really a, a male boy. And he has to watch, you know, he has contact minimal with the justices, but he watches these law clerks and these people who have these very different lives. And the twist is, is that one night when he is uh, going, you know, going home after a long shift, he stumbles upon a mugging that's in place, a real violent mugging. And he intervenes and saves the victim. And little does he know until later that the, the person he saved was the chief justice of the United States. And so... Um, the chief takes an interest in him and, 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 and one thing leads to another and, he, and Grayson becomes a law clerk alongside uh, the, the other, these other uh, really kind of different people. And he's thrust into this unique world. And um, you know, they're, they're, the mystery component of the story is, is just, you know, he's kind of torn. He, he's being, you know, he, 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 when he grew up, he was busting tables at his family's restaurant. His boyhood best friend is, uh, now kind of a local crime lord, yet he's now sitting and debating legal, the big legal questions of the day with the other law clerks. He's going to lunch at the Palm with the chief justice, and there's this push-pull. And just as he's uh, starting to adapt and, and fit in, an FBI agent approaches him, and she basically tells him that, look, there we think there is someone connected or who may work in the building or connected to the court who's been involved in a series of murders, and, you know, you were, the, they say, basically, you're the only one who didn't work in that building at the time of the first two murders. And so, you know, just keep an eye out. And they ask him to really be their eyes and ears inside the, the, the Supreme Court. And, you know, one thing leads to another. And uh, it's uh, he um, he gets you know pulled in deeper and deeper into this mystery about who who may be committing these murders. And it seems to be someone obsessed with the Supreme Court. So that's a that's a long-winded uh, uh, summary of uh, the that's opposite of a, of a tight elevator summary. <laughs> <laughs> that's what, I mean, but you know that's good because uh, the one thing that I think that not only is this election cycle kind of done, especially with this new presidency, has kind of let people know that the legal system is a pretty pretty strong entity in how our stuff, uh, you know, how laws and how our things are created. So when you're talking in here, like you said, you know, I have no idea what a law, you know, kind of what a runner and what those someone does. I would have no idea that that's a lawyer. I would have no idea, you know, kind of how all those things work. But, you know, when you were determining who you wanted to kind of be the head of this, because you don't write series in your last book, you know, your, your standalones. So when you were creating Grace and Hernandez, what was your draw to him? What was your draw to you know, create this kind of a character and and put them in this kind of a world. Yeah, it's a great question. I you know I my last book, The Advocate's Daughter, we, the main character was a, a, a Supreme Court lawyer in his forties with three kids who lived in my neighborhood. You know, and so right. there were a few parallels to me that I could draw on. And so this time I thought I wanted to challenge myself and do something a little different. And I I decided I wanted to do something with with someone younger have a little more action to the story um, and also have somebody who didn't follow the usual path. And I, you know, like have a fish out of water component to the murder mystery. And, you know, I just like the idea of putting someone who really doesn't fit the mold, but who, you know, who's smart, who just didn't have the opportunities into this elite world of people who, who, you know, they're, they are the cream of the crop in law school, 
they tend to follow a similar path. They tend to be from affluent backgrounds and, and have had the advantages that gave them the opportunity to become Supreme Court law clerks. So I wanted to kind of have that as a backdrop to explore Grayson's character. Um, and also just there's some kind of fun with a fish out of water story where, you know, he, he, he goes literally from the, from the mail room to, uh, to becoming a clerk. He doesn't have the clothes to wear. He, when he goes out to lunch, he doesn't know what fork to use. He, you know, all those kind of things outside the legal component. And it's nice to have, to show that, that, you know, people, there are plenty of talented, smart people if given the right opportunity could do amazing uh, work in the law and other fields. And I like to show, show that you know, he was a kid who, who for whatever reason was a court watcher because his mother was, was always, when they took their citizenship exams, he, his mother got him into the U S government and he has this patriotic streak. And so to have him, uh, get this opportunity. I just thought was a fun thing to do, and then it all falls to crap, of course, because you you know I have to have, have, have to some fun crap. with the character. <laughs> yeah, otherwise yeah. the post would be pretty short. <laughs> it's no then it just reads like a textbook if it doesn't fall to crap, right? Right. right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I try to avoid the textbook. I try to bring people in. It's the biggest challenge of writing these things is is trying to have the balance of bringing people into this world, which I think is pretty fascinating, but as with most of life, it's, you know, it's fast. A lot of the things I find fascinating are super boring to other people. And particularly my wife will tell me that. So I try and find the nuggets to give an air of authenticity to educate a little bit, you know, about how the Supreme Court works, which is an interesting component. It is that one branch of government that is operates largely in secret. Um, and um, I try and, you know, pull back the curtain a little bit, but not do too much that you feel like you're drudging through a, a textbook. So it's always a challenge. And I, um, I try to find just the right balance. And, you know, sometimes I do great. Sometimes maybe not. <laughs> well, and then you bring in Lauren Hart. Tell us about yes. her. Very interesting well, character that you have. You well, know, you know, thank you. Um, the, so Grayson is he's he goes from the mailroom as I said to be a Supreme Court clerk, and the Chief Justice already has four clerks. Um, one of them is named Lauren Hart. Um, she's from a super wealthy background. He, he's Gray is immediately attracted to her. She's she has this you know she has had the kind of classic proper upbringing, um, and is from this totally different world. And she's also the smartest among the other clerks, and and she's the informal leader, and he sees that, and she. She doesn't take to him immediately, but the chief justice assigns her to kind of show him the ropes. Um, and then there's two other, uh, excuse me, three other clerks. There's Keir Landon, who is the son of a, a prominent uh, court of appeals judge and, and, and a bit of a, an ass. Um, there's uh, the clerk named Mike, who's a bit of a frat boy type. And there, then there's Praveen. He's uh, an Indian American whose parents uh, both work at the White House. And so... Gray has to muddle his way through these four people who have been number one at basically everything they've done their entire lives um, and find his way. And then he, they ultimately warm up to him. Um, as far as Lauren, he has, he develops a relationship with her and, uh, uh, and she plays kind of a critical role as the plot develops. Yeah. I mean, and that's kind of the thing that is always entertaining because you have to have that inner intertangle kind of uh, that emotional kind of pull that he starts to feel. And then all of a sudden everything kind of starts going to shit. But then, you know, you kind of have that emotional kind of pull that kind of comes back 
uh, and, and kind of brings things, you know, full circle. So what was one of your biggest challenges when you were kind of figuring out not just the relationship made between Grayson and Lauren, but, you know, kind of how everything was going to fit within the puzzle uh, because you kind of have, you know, you have always, there's always a couple storylines that are going along with the main one. Yeah. And, and the, I, I guess the challenge was, is, is, is one was finding the balance between not making it a textbook and, and, and being entertaining and weaving in um, Supreme court uh, history and precedent and things like that into the story. Um, so I have basically two parallel storylines. One is Grayson's um, ascent into the Supreme Court world and the fish out of water component to that. And the other is an FBI um, agent named Emma Milstein is investigating a series of murders and um, the, uh, the killer seems obsessed with the court. He leaves things behind at the scene that only someone associated with the court might know about. He, they, the, the scenes seem to be set in a way that um, th- that there's something that seems off, and so she, as the story progresses, there are more murders, and ultimately um, the the agent first thinks Gray is just somebody who's there who. Um, he intervened on a mugging on the chief. So they think, well, maybe that they think that mugging may be related to the murders. Um, and, and since he, since he's the only one who's been on the outside of the court at the time of the first murders, maybe he can, you know, just keep an eye on things. But as the story progresses, he, he actually uh, gives them, you know, his knowledge of the Supreme court and precedent. He sees things in the murders that, that, other people don't and so he just gets pulled in and so it's 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 the the progression of the two storylines intersect and it was it was a challenge to because you know i i somebody described the book as um the firm meets supreme court meets the movie seven because the murders kind of have a, a component of seven i think that was a pretty good uh pretty good kind of description of, of how it all works out and trying to get the intersection right was, was, was hard. It took a long time. Um, and particularly that, you know, this was the first time I've ever, you know, I was on contract to do, um, a book, you know, a, a, a book a year after yeah. the advocate's daughter. And I had in the interim, I had, um, uh, we had two cases in the Supreme court. I had a busy practice. My son left for college. And so, so a lot of things going on oh, in my so life. You had, too. you had plenty of time, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So a lot of caffeine, a lot of patience from my wife, uh, and, uh, support from my kids, letting me, uh, spend some weekend days, uh, 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 hunker down in the office and, uh, and, and a lot of support from my law firm, which has been really great about this, um, other career I have as a, as a thriller writer. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, just, uh, to find the time to be able to do this because it is not an easy thing. You know, when, when you write your first book, it, you have as much time as you want because there's no pressure. It's either you do it or you don't. But then once you get that book deal, I don't think a lot of people realize once you get that book deal, now it's like, okay, yeah, this one's done great. Now let's, what's the next one? You're like, Oh shit. Um, yeah, yeah, right. I guess I have to start working on that. And, and that, and that just gives you a whole new layer of pressure. Not just, I think the, the, the way of, Hey, I got to write another book, but now I got to come up with something all brand new again because you have not gone the way of the series. Um, and, and I think that sometimes when you write a series, I think it's a little easier to do a second book because you have a basis already to move forward, but you did not. So, do you see a series 
in your future? Do you see that that's the way you maybe want to go later? Or are you just going to stick with, you know, the standalones um, because, you know, you find that more entertaining? I, I think for the short term, I'm going to go standalone. And, I, you know, I think series are both some ways easier, some ways harder. And they're easier, as you said, because the universe is already there. You have a crutch of some of the characters, but they're harder because you got to make them fresh and you've got to remember all the things you said in the last book. And, and yeah, so you have other challenges. And I have friends. Yeah. I have friends who do, you know, just amazing series for me. I just, I need, you know, maybe it's my short attention span. I need something to get me excited to get in the chair and write because I'm so busy. And um, I just like, the idea of starting with something totally brand new. It's intimidating, but challenging myself like with this book, you know, getting into my last book, getting in the head of a 45 year old who works in downtown DC at a law firm. It wasn't as hard as, as, as it could have been because yeah. I'm, you know, in my mid forties and work at a downtown law firm. And so this time I just thought, well, you know, let's get somebody in their twenties and, and, and it interests me to, you start listening to people on the subway, 20 year olds, how they talk. I have a son who's 19, uh, um, you know, seeing how his world exists and the differences between my generation and, and those type of things just kept, kept it interesting for me. Um, but, you know, a series someday, you know, some of my favorite writers started off doing, you know, standalone after standalone. Greg Hurwitz, who I, you know, I, I really love his work. He did oh, standalones. Yeah. And, and now then, you know, he, he found a character that he, in Orphan X, he, he found a character that he set, decided, ah, oh, this is somebody I could, I could keep going to and keep interested. I hope that happens to me someday. But um, for now, it's standalone. My next book's going to be a standalone as well. Um, so we'll, you know, we'll see. I hope to be doing this for a while, and um, uh, um, I, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, a series would be something different at some point down the line. Now, do you kind of see? I mean, are you going to be writing? I mean, legal. That's what it's going to be. You're not going to jump out and maybe do something else or anything else. You're going to stick in the legal world. You know, I'm, I'm I, the next. The, my current book I'm working on is peri- only peripheral legal. It's more of a domestic thriller, um, but it does have a legal component. I can see getting out of the legal realm at some point. I had actually done up a um, proposal that that uh, for the next book before I started. You know, uh, that that was totally non-legal, and I wrote a proposal for a, a international thriller that I was pretty excited about. But by the time that the the proposal was was ready to go and we to for my agent to to you know d- get out there i decided that i i just didn't have it in me to write the book <laughs> and so and i had started writing <laughs> this other book and it's set in the legal world so so you know we'll see how things go um i you know i i want to write about you know they say write the book you want to read and i like to i, I like um thrillers that have a legal component maybe not necessarily courtroom dramas but uh, I, I like that this genre. I read, you know, James Grappando's new book, um, uh, um, D- William Landay's Defending Jacobs is one of my Defending Jacob is one of my favorite books. So I gravitate towards this style uh, of book, and and so that's I'm going to keep doing it as as long as it interests me. And um, I, I can see someday though tr- challenging myself to go. All right, how much more can you write about the Supreme Court for goodness sakes, and, and do something totally different. Yeah. I mean, and the one thing, like I said, that what we've seen in this last cycle of news and everything that's been going on, of course, and all just and like we just mentioned in the last episode, was 
you know, the travel ban that just happened, and all of a sudden you see the courts uh, come in and say, no, that's not going to happen. And I think a lot of people don't realize maybe how, you know, the court system works and how, and how powerful kind of it is. So when you're writing and, you know, you know the ins and outs and you know all that stuff, and, and quite frankly, 90% of it is probably pretty boring. And maybe you get a 10% and people get all excited. It's kind of like, you know, a doctor getting a case that he can't solve, and it's like, oh, my God, this is exciting. I don't have to write amoxicillin again for the same freaking ailment. <laughs> so, you know, and it's a weird kind of fascination that, wow, I'm getting excited because this is really fucked up. And so, but how are you able to kind of write those those things that I think a lot of people don't really understand, but you're able to kind of make them understand in a fictional way. Is that difficult? Um, yeah, I think that, you know, I tell people, look, I've had, I'm going on my 40th case representing in different capacities in the Supreme Court. And I still find writing novels harder than any of them. <laughs> um, uh, writing fiction is incredibly difficult. And I, respect anybody who who embarks on the journey to do so because it, it it is a leap of faith in the beginning in particular and it is you know you're you're creating something from nothing just solely from your imagination and you want and you need to make it so people believe it and it and it so it's it's i find it very difficult as far as the the legal side i mean your point about um uh, you know, current events. I think, you know, I think it's an important one. I, for me, there's a lot of lawyer jokes and, 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 and this and that, but I've never been, you know, I've always been proud that, to be a lawyer because I know that when the shit hits the fan for anybody in so many contexts, um, the, the person who can often be the most help to you um, is a lawyer. And, you know, Shakespeare, when they said, let's kill all the lawyers, it wasn't uh, because, lawyers you know they wanted lawyers who were despicable they wanted to kill all the lawyers because the lawyers were the defenders of rights and i think we've seen that and i and i you know if there's anything positive that comes out of this um debacle with the immigration situation it's that it's that i think people saw that lawyers you know lawyer it was lawyers and it was judges that um that that were the the check on um, on yeah. the system, and and so so um, you know, and so and I try you know in the, in, in the outsider, I try to incorporate um, in all of my books, I try and incorporate some real stuff, some fictionalized stuff about legal issues, oppressing legal issues that are in the pike or or that have occurred, and uh, but I, I'm 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 one of these lawyers that think that it's a noble profession, and I you know some of the uh, I can tell you some of my colleagues have helped people in their darkest hours and um, including people on death row. And, uh, you know, it makes me proud to, 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 to be part of the profession, despite, you know, that, that there are some downs, obviously some, some, some um, bad apples and things like that. So that's my kind of preachy uh, <laughs> pro lawyer lecture. Well, what's the feel? I mean, like just what's the feel of Washington now? Of course, you know, I'm in Los Angeles and I only get the news, but you know, you're kind of there. I mean, what's the feeling of it like now? I mean, is it, it's gotta be so much crazier than it was, you know, with the Obama administration. It's just, the feel just has to be different. Yeah, I think I feel it different. Like, you know, I, I remember I moved to Washington uh, shortly out of law school and, and, my first day in the city, the headline on the newspaper was Monica Lewinsky, you know, so the story broke that day. Oh, and I remember the electricity in the city. 
and I and, and over the years there's been ups and downs and and through different administrations. But I will tell you that for me, this is unlike anything before the feeling here. And um, I think that what you see on the news is kind of what you experience. It's a, it's a roller coaster for everybody and people here. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know how it's going to turn out, but um, it, I think this will this will be one that my kids' kids are reading about in the history books. So it's, um, yep. you know, and that, that's, that's in general. I mean, day to day, it's still you know, I'm on the subway, I go to my office and I work on my cases. So it's in some respects the same, but, but the feeling I think you get on the news is, is the feeling we get here. Maybe ratchet up one notch because you know, that you can, you can see the Capitol dome from, you know, from my building. Nice. Yeah. I tell you, I mean, this is kind of our generations just, I don't even know how to put it. I really don't. I mean, you know, I mean, my first presidential election that I remember was 1980 with Reagan, and I've just never seen anything like this. So I was just kind of curious to kind of like, you know, is it really that polarizing? I mean, to just – I don't think I've ever seen it so divided ever before that I have now. Maybe, I don't know, maybe because I'm 46, my eyes are open more. I don't know. But I just – I always find it funny when we call ourselves United States of America, and I'm like, that could be no further from the truth. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, no, I, I feel the same way. I, I feel like, you know, I, I feel like there is a definite division in viewpoints. Oh, and if yeah. you're on Facebook for five minutes, you can, oh, you, can, even go there. You, you, you can, you can see that. But um, I also am a believer of, of that when um, that, that it's core people are pretty decent. And once you, once you get to know where somebody's coming sure. from, um there's 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 common ground it's just for i think we're going to have to go through a little more of this and hopefully the fever will break and uh um things will get back to a little more get some normality i mean that's all i mean you got to get rid of the hate the hate's bad so but you know what the good thing that we have is we have fantastic books we have fantastic reads and when we ever just want to get away and off facebook and off social media which i can't highly recommend to anybody higher than this but get away and get some great books. And, you know, Anthony, it's, it's always great to talk to you and talk about, you know, your latest book, The Outsider. And, hey, I mean, you're kind of in it now. I mean, you kind of had Last Justice, and then you took a while, and all of a sudden now it's bam, bam, bam. So th- this is it. Now you're in it. <laughs> this is I'm in life. the thick of it, yeah, but I'm enjoying it, and, and it's That's it's good. it's uh... It's a lot of fun, and, and uh, it's been a real – for me, this uh, Last Justice came out, and my first novel came out in 2012, um, and yeah. then uh, the Advocate's Daughter last year. So it's it, – I'm of the mindset before where people would ask me, you know, what, what do you do? And I would say lawyer, and even after Last Justice. But I'm in the writer world now, and I love it, and I, I really have found um, it, one of the joys of this whole – thing is other than hearing from readers and, and having seen your store your uh, your book and uh, in the bookstores and all of those type of things it's been becoming part of a new community with the international thriller writers organization and yeah. and um some of my closest friends you know barry lancet you know uh our author of uh of the japantown series he's he's one of my you know close buddies and uh at my age, you know, to make good friends who you, new friends um, and become part of a new community has just been, it's been a real rewarding experience. And real quick, how many books are you signed for? Do you have, how many books after this are you signed for? 
I am well. This was my sec. This is my second on a two-year contract. So we'll. Uh, I hopefully will be on the next two. Um, okay. And I. But I'm trying to get. I. I'm trying to get on a more of a two book a book every two year schedule because this one, gotcha. as I mentioned, you know, nearly killed me. <laughs> a lot out of you. It did. Yeah, it I mean, did. And I hope it was. You know, hopefully, the outsider will uh, uh, um, show the hard work. But uh, but uh, I would expect you won't see me in the bookstores until uh, 2019, 2019 after this one. All right, man. Well, hey, we want to thank you again so much for coming on. It's been absolutely fascinating. Hey, Love as always, thank you. you. Yes, you have a good one. We and maybe I'll see you uh, this July in Thriller Fest. So we'll have well, to I will see. be at Thriller Fest, and I hope everyone goes to Thriller Fest and Craft Fest. And uh, uh, any aspiring writers listening, I would say uh, I wish I had known about that conference exactly. because I think it's a game changer. And I hope to see wow. you and Shannon. And thank you and Suspense Magazine and every for everything you guys do. Appreciate it. Thank you, Anthony. We'll talk soon, man. Talk soon. Bye. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is author Anthony Franz. You can go to anthonyfranzbooks.com, F-R-A-N-Z-E, books.com, for more information on The Outsider and, of course, all his other books uh, that you can find out about, going back to his last one, The Advocate's Daughter, fascinating read, The Last Justice. Uh, so you like legal thrillers and you like fast-paced books, make sure that you pick up Anthony's here and uh, enthrall yourself in, uh, in some great stories. We're going to take another short break. And then we're going to be back with our last guest here, Dale Wiley. And we've talked to Dale before, so uh, we're going to be speaking about his latest book, Southern Gothic. So stay tuned for that, and we will be back in just a second. Here you go. Thank you for coming back. We're going to take a quick, that was just a quick little break, uh, just to get everything ready here with author Dale Wiley. But a fascinating show. Again, we want to let everybody know thank you to Brad Parks uh, and Anthony France for both coming on to the show. It's been fascinating to have them on. But now we're going to transition. We're going to take you down south. We're going to take you down here into Savannah, Georgia. Um, and the book is called Southern Gothic, and it's by author Dale Wiley. We had Dale on. Uh, I think it was a little over a year ago. Uh, I'm trying to remember, but I know that I've talked to him before. So, Dale, thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing? Oh, absolutely. I've, I think I've made two appearances, so this is my I, yeah. third trip. <laughs> and, and, and your latest book here, Southern Gothic, um, you, 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 kind, you, you take people down here into Savannah, Georgia, uh, you know, uh, a fascinating town. I think that a lot of people might have – uh, got a little bit, you know, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, got a nice little taste of kind right. of what it's like in the South. And so now uh-huh. your book here uh, is about Meredith Harper and Southern Gothic. Why don't you tell us about it? Well, I like to say, you know, Meredith has a really great job that she's just started. She built up this bookstore and bakery. It's doing wonderfully. She's kind of the toast of the town. But at her core, she's a failed novelist, and she, her novel never made it on the shelves. She was sure it would. She sent copies to everybody, but it never made it. 
And then one day, her favorite author, Michael Black, who's been missing, and, and many people thought he was dead, um, he shows up, and he gives her a new rewritten manuscript, and it's her story, but it's written by him. And she loves it, and he gives her a really interesting offer. He tells her, you can put it out, but if you put it out, you've got to put it under your own name because I'm perfectly happy being where I am. And so the book is called Red Ribbon. You get to read that, too. It's a book within a book. And it tells the haunted mansion story, a ghost story, a story about um, a Civil War plantation and um, takes us into that world. And then what, what Meredith is unaware of is how much that Michael has actually hidden in that manuscript. Mm. Now, why did you, I guess, first, first of all, let's go in and, and let's talk about, you know, exactly who is, uh, you know, Meredith. Why, why, why her? Why is she the one? Why, why, why do you have her kind of, you know, there? Well, you know, I I really liked the idea of writing from, you know, kind of a female heroine's perspective. And I I just wanted somebody that kind of had her life in in place and she really ought to be happy with where she is. I mean, she's she's got everything that she thinks she's wanted in life except for that desire to be famous and be recognized, you know, along with the authors that she's promoting. So that, that was my thought. And to me, it was really fun to write from that perspective, which was obviously different from any that I had written from in the past. You know, and, and the question that, that that's kind of funny is it's almost uh, if you you know some books you know have morals and some don't. This is almost a moral of greed, I guess you want to say, saying that you know, and this is no spoiler, but you know, her her favorite writer gives her a manuscript. She can keep it for herself, but as soon as she decides right. to publish it under her own name, something that she maybe should have thought about doing, that's when all hell breaks <laughs> loose. So it's kind right. of like she was under. You know what? She just. She couldn't help herself. It was almost like greed and vanity, you know, were you know kind of seeped in, and she just she had to kind of do this. And you, you know, it, it's it's kind of like a moral story. Like you know what? If you get that shit, just leave it to yourself, because <laughs> you don't know what kind of Pandora's box you're going to open. Well, and and I mean, to me, that's the fun of it. Is you know, you're you know, as the author, you get to kind of tip whatever scales you want to tip. And so part of it is just getting her to the breaking point that between being done with her marriage and meeting this man that seems so fascinating and so perfect, and yet at the same time, he's given her plenty of hints that she should just walk away from this. But it's just one of those things that sometimes the more enticing, um, you know, the, the better it all seems. And, and, you know, you could just look at this and say, no, Meredith, don't do that. Please don't do that. And yet she just continues to walk on that, that same path. Yeah. I mean, how long, you know, how long did you kind of have this premise uh, kind of maybe 
percolating, I guess you want to say, in the back of your mind, because, you know, you're another author, you know, you're, you're not into the series realm. I mean, this is a standalone book, you right. know, your last one, Sabotage. <laughs> so, you know, you, you're, you're, you know, you're kind of starting out with the, you, with the blank canvas, and you kind of have to do so. How long was this, you know, this kind of percolating in the back of your mind that, that you wanted to kind of get this out? Well, this one was very funny, because I had... I had gotten an agent um, after sabotage. And um, at the beginning of the summer of 2015, she asked me an absolutely reasonable question, which was, what are you writing next? And my answer was, well, I I didn't answer it. I would have sounded stupid to answer. I I didn't have a clue what I was going to write. And, you know, with the other books, I did uh, those ruminated those kind of fleshed themselves out and with sabotage i or with uh, southern gothic i took a vacation with my kids and all week i could have been writing and i couldn't think of what i was going to write and so we were coming back to missouri we were in memphis we were staying the last night of our vacation at a hotel and i was down at the hotel pool with the kids while they were swimming around and I looked across the way, and there was an old southern street light. And I mean, I was just absolutely transported to Savannah. And for some reason, I, and then I started thinking, well, you know, that would be fun to write. That would be kind of fun. And I mean, within about 20 minutes, 20 or 30 minutes, most of the plot had come together. And, um, you know, I started writing the next day when I got back. Yeah, so it just kind of hits you without even really knowing that it was going to hit you. Exactly, exactly. And I yeah. had a little bit of some ideas for the book within a book, although it took a little time to kind of reconfigure that because I had originally set that story in Missouri. And, you know, so basically I had a wonderful time writing it, and it's been really fun. You know, it's come out in hardback. I got to do the whole book tour thing. And it's just been a tremendously fun experience. Now, you said that you originally had it set in Missouri. Why did you decide to change it then, and why did you pick Savannah? Well, I had the story within a story. I had the Red Ribbon story. And originally, I tried to write that as a novel by itself. And I used to live in Missouri at the corner of a road where not only had there been a Civil War battle, but there also was the Trail of Tears. And so I thought, well, that would be a good place to find some ghosts. And, you know, when we went out in our yard, we, we could find, you know, um, the, the sabos and things from the um, Civil War artillery and those kind of things. And so, but then, clearly, my little southern street light, and then I decided to call the book Southern Gothic. I mean, it was coming back south. There was no doubt about that. And Savannah is just such an interesting country unto itself. It's not like the rest of the south. It's completely its own place. And I thought, what a great place to set it. And so then I was just kind of off to the races. And then at that point, it just didn't seem like it should be a Missouri story. It needed to be a southern ghost story. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and you know, when you're studying a story in such a, um, I guess you want to say such a history-filled, rich, uh, deeply 
you know, rooted kind of city like Savannah, it almost becomes a character in itself. Well, it clearly is just because you can go to a thousand cities and none of them feel like Savannah. And, you know, it's a little boozier. It's a little more uptight. It's all those things at the same time. And so what I tried to do was put Meredith in that context of, you know, both being more fun than the normal place and also having more kind of social structure. And, and so I, I tried to do all of that while, you know, keeping um, it, it really being a love story gone really, really wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, how do you think that, you know, the, does this differ? Does your writing style kind of differ from, you know, your last book, just like in Sabotage? So are people going to kind of see, you know, a little different Dale Wiley? Was there something that you wanted to maybe emphasize a little more in this book? And, and what I mean by that is, you know, were you working maybe on more scene setting? Were you working maybe more on, you know, dialogue or, you know, just plot and, you know, pace or things like that? What is somebody going to notice the difference, you know, in Dale, in Dale Wiley's writing? Well, I guess that I always try to write to the content. I always try to write um, where I think the story is. And so with each of the three novels that I've written, you know, The Intern, which is kind of comedy and, and um, more, you know, it's from a first-person point of view. And then Sabotage is from multiple points of view and very fast-paced. And, um, uh, you know, just um, very, very quick. And with Southern Gothic, I wanted to set a little more of a scene, get into the details a little bit more, and then also try to write it from this, you know, different point of view about the creative process, but we don't see the creative process. We see them kind of trying to develop a romance trying to do all of those things. So, yeah, I feel like each one of them, um, there might be some similarities in that I, you know, I can't ever avoid a good kind of humorous moment or something like that. But this, this story is markedly different from the first two. And have you seen emails? Have your fans kind of came out and said, you know, wow, this is, uh, because you, you can just tell basically just from reading the back of the book that you, you know, dove into something that was so much more different. How have your fans kind of written and, and, and said what they thought about, you know, how, um, you know, how they like this new kind of Dale Wiley, I guess you want to say, writing style? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that I did three books that are so different because I think it sets me up that, um, you know, the, the audience is a little more willing to go where I take them. And, and so the, the fan response has been very positive. Um, it has been uh, certainly, I, you know, I think a lot of people um, have seen it as, as the best one. Um, but again, you know, some of the other people are really hardcore with the other books too. And, and that's fun too. I mean, developing an audience that, will kind of allow you to go try different things, I think is, is very fun. Um, but I would say that um, 
you know, when somebody connects with this book, and it may be that it's a little better if they've, you know, written or read some of my stuff before or whatever, but when someone connects with this book, they really connect with it. And I, and it's one of those books that it kind of ends in this way that's not totally settled, but very interesting. And, and as we've, you know, talked to some movie people and some different things about, you know, possibilities, they've kind of brought up the, the idea of where do you take this? Where does it go? But um, yeah, it's been very fun to see when somebody likes this book, they really like it. Mm-hmm. And now that you're kind of three books in and, you know, you, you kind of uh, starting to get more involved in the, in the marketing part and having to get yourself uh-huh. out there and do all that stuff. How, how's it been? Has yeah. it been, has, has it come easier for you now? Is it still something, you know, how's that process kind of been for you now that you're kind of now in three books and had to do all the promotion and, and now you're kind of a little bit more old hat? Well, I've got a better team surrounding me this time. Uh, Vesuvian Publishing is just top-notch. They've been great to deal with. Um, Meryl Moss Media, just the the kind of people that have come to the table have been really um, uh, helpful and interesting and in, in constantly coming up with new angles. Um, I really enjoyed the book tour that I did. I took a week and went down south and and saw a lot of family and a lot of friends and people I hadn't seen in many years, did a lot of TV. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really fun. And then now, you know, when you wrote the first one, it, it almost felt, you kind of felt naked almost because you're out there and everybody else has got 27 books that they've already written and you don't have anything but the one you've written. And, and so now um, it's nice to have a few things under my belt and I really enjoyed getting to go to Savannah and uh, getting a regal reception there. And, and Augusta, Georgia was amazing and Atlanta and, and all the Memphis, all the different places that I went, Kansas city and St. Louis, um, I mean, that's what you do this for. I, I, I just said, I think everybody ought to do a book tour, whether they write a book or not. You know, it's just a, a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. What, what do you got coming up into the future? Or what are you doing, um, you know, are, are you going to set, are you going to kind of go around and, and set books in different areas? You're going to, you know, what's kind of the <laughs> thought process now that you go, well, be, you know, you just never know. I mean, uh, how... How, you know, how are you going to kind of, you know, cultivate your uh, your catalog? Yeah. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah, I can hear you. I know, it okay. sounds like you're outside. Sorry. I hear a little wind, but it's all good. Well, no, no, I, um, I, I seem to drop off there for a second. Um, I've got several different projects going. I, um, I'm friends with a couple of the people that were producers and directors on CSI, and we're working on a, a TV show possibly, and oh. one that will probably lend itself to some um, uh, to some serialization and that sort of thing. Um, I've got a I've got short stories coming out of the next couple of months. One of the first one, which is due on um, April fourteenth, and it is another totally different story. I was tired of having things that 
um, were not exactly my mother's cup of tea to read. So I wrote some kind of funny stories, uh, kind of making a character out of her. And that's called the Margaret Baker stories. And, and the first of those are coming out on April 14th. Um, I've got another story about a, a older friend of mine who died a couple of years ago, who I called the cowboy James Bond. He was quite a character and that's called Suti, and that's coming out in May. And then I've got a novel that I'm working on that I have kind of described as Dan Brown meets Missouri meth characters. And um, that's called the, Jeffer- the Jefferson Bible. And uh, so I'm working on that as well. Wow. So you got a lot of, you got a lot of stuff in the fire. Yeah, it's been good. I've had some of the, you know, one of the things that I've really found is that once I started putting this stuff down and writing and getting some of it finished and, and getting good responses and everything else, I, I just found that it was easier to do than I had previously thought. And so I've been working on some ideas and just letting them take the form that they choose to take. You know, not trying to um, force each one of them into a novel or anything like that, but um, doing some of the stuff with an idea of, you know, keeping fresh stuff out there. And, and um, you know, the, the TV thing has been so much fun to write, and it's so much easier to write a script than it is to write a novel. And, and so all of it's just been a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- now, when you say, you know, like, when you're writing TV and, of course, when you're writing books, uh, I think, you know, that people realize that there is, you know, a massive difference in having to do it. But what is one of the, you know, are you, do you enjoy more TV? Do you enjoy more novels? Because, of course, TV, you know, more visual. I think a lot of people would be shocked to maybe hear that a full-length movie is really only like 100 pages for a script. It's not all that big because oh, yeah. when you actually sit down yeah. and look at an action movie, I mean, how much dialogue really is there? It's a lot of scene set up and it's a lot of visualization, whereas writing the book, right. you have to write that visual, you know, visualization. Yes. So, <laughs> what, you know, what, what are the biggest challenges for you in doing both? Well, each one of them, you just have to conceive of it differently. You know, I mean, because they're both incredibly fun processes. But if I'm working on one of these scripts, you know, I might be able to get through a draft of that in a week. I mean, it's something that that does not take nearly as long. But at the same time, um, especially when you kind of get from that point of, it just being your story and being in your head to trying to work with seasoned producers and directors. It's, it's really then uh, there's an element of it, of getting from point A to point B and just things that, that you don't even think about when you're initially writing that stuff. And so my, my feeling is that the project just kind of comes to you in whatever, you know, I mean, essentially it's the same elements. It's a story and you're trying to have it hit certain marks and have it reach certain emotions and everything else. But um, I've, I've just really enjoyed both of them tremendously. And I just think it's a tremendous amount of fun to get to put your stories down and, and get to kind of see where they go. Yeah. And then you kind of just kind of see how they, uh, I guess, you know, I mean, yeah, it's just kind of, you know, how is it going to look and how is it going to feel and how is it going to kind of be received? It's always kind of, 
you know, it, it's a little scary sometimes too when you're like, I don't know how it's going to be received. <laughs> I don't, you know, you, you know, you 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 still kind of get that. You, you still kind of get nervous with with reviews when you put one out there and it's like it's live and you're like, oh God, here we go again. All right, all right, relax, relax. <laughs> well, you know, there's a certain element, and I I caught the end of your last interview where you're talking about the meanness and. Facebook and that sort of thing. And there's definitely an element that people express opinions that they would not have expressed years ago. And, and, you know, they certainly do it without thinking of just the tremendous amount of effort that goes into working on one of these projects and that sort of thing. But ultimately, if you're going to write, you just got to get over that. I mean, you've got to realize that, um, that people have, different not only different perspectives but different motives for putting reviews up and doing that sort of thing and uh, you know you just kind of have to develop some thick skin i mean i practice law during the day and and so after you've done that and been through law professors and judges and clients and everything that gets a lot easier to do but but ultimately um I guess that I've been lucky enough to feel confident enough in the work that I've done that that doesn't really change much about where I'm going, although it never feels good to see some review and realize that that person's just there's something else going on there. It's not just about this book, so um but you gotta get used to it. that's part of the deal. Yeah, I think that the biggest thing is, you know, you got to have the thick skin. Uh, definitely, when you're, you know, when you when you get those reviews and and you and you're getting yourself out there. I mean, because the internet is a cruel, cruel. It can be a very cruel, cruel place uh, where people think that, well, you know, he put out there, so I should be able to say anything I want. It's like, yeah, well, you know, right. what? there still is someone on the other end of that. That uh, you know, you still have yeah. to be a little bit. You know, you got to show a little bit of, you know, cooth when you do it. The problem is in today's day and age that people can say whatever they feel like they think, and it's just like, why can't I say whatever I feel like? First Amendment. It's like, yeah, that's that's kind of a cop-out um, to kind of <laughs> act that way. But, yeah, I mean, and, and yeah, I kind of see the, re- you know, and I look and I see reviews on Amazon and I see that, and I'm like, boy, you literally sat down and just put so much hate kind of into that. It's like, so I always kind of tell people, you know what, just kind of throw those away and don't even really worry about them and just kind of move on. But, yeah, it's difficult at times. Well, and it's one of those things that if you think about it for very long, you realize that there's something going on in their lives. I mean, there's there's something that brings them – to bring that much vitriol. And and luckily, I've been very lucky in that those have been few and far between. And um, the vast majority of people that have read the stuff have enjoyed it, and I have learned how to let that roll off your back because if you don't, you're going to have a miserable life being a writer because that stuff's going to happen, especially in this age. And so I just have fun with it and, and hopefully try to share the process and what I'm thinking and, and, you know, keep it, keep it positive. Yes. Well, I mean, right now your Amazon reviews are kicking it, man. You're doing fabulous. So, <laughs> uh, and I'm sure, you know, you kind of check those every once in a while and you kind of look, but uh, yeah, yeah I mean, once or twice. Yeah. You know, 
Uh, it's on speed dial. <laughs> but hey, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been absolutely fascinating. Oh, um, it's been yeah. great. It's always great. So, so thanks for I everything can't wait. you do, and what a great magazine and great podcast. Oh, thank you well, so much. All. Thank you so much. So hey, okay. um, why don't you? So real quick though, why don't you kind of let everybody know where you're at, what you're doing, and uh, what you got going on? Okay. Well, my website is www.dalewiley.com. If you sign up for my mailing list, you'll actually get a free novella called Kissing Persuasive Lips that um, I'm pretty happy with. And it's kind of another character that may make a reappearance, Mick Lord. Um, I'm Wiley Law 2 at Twitter. Um, I think my page at Facebook is Dale Wiley Author. Um, And I'd invite you to go by. We've got some short stories coming up. If you've got a mother or a grandmother that maybe doesn't like all the um, evil that has to be placed in some of these books, I think they really might enjoy the Margaret Baker stories. And just going to have a lot of stuff uh, coming up. Follow me on Amazon, and we'll keep you updated. Well, again, I want to thank you so much, Dale, for coming on, and we wish you nothing but the best and can't wait to see what we got happening. So thank you so much and enjoy. All right. Well, thank you. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that means that we're at the end, everybody. You hear the music. We're coming down. We want to thank you all for joining us again today. Uh, it's been fascinating to be able to come with you again. Uh, make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes, get all the shows, and like we always used to say, keep reading. Enjoy. Talk to you later. Bye.